WLRN edition 66 broadcasting in three, two, one. I was born woman off my knees. I will stand for my liberation. Sisters rise again. I was born woman off my knees. I will stand for my liberation. Rise and rise again. Greetings. And welcome to the 66th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, October 7th, 2021. This is Thistle Pedersen, founding member of WLRN and proud lesbian feminist doing what I can to topple the patriarchy. This month's edition focuses on lesbian feminism in Germany with interviews WLRN member Julia Beck did with Inga Klein, Manuela Kai, and Judith. These three women each provide a different perspective on topics like lesbian visibility and feminist activism. Then, Julia closes out the show with her compelling commentary, which gives historical context to the changes in lesbianism and feminism in Germany over time. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's Jennifer Billick doing her special monthly report on the gender industry. Hi all, this is Jennifer Billick from the 11th Hour Blog with a special report exclusively for Women's Liberation Radio News. I report on the global gender industry at the intersections of capitalism, technology, the corporatized LGBT and the medical industrial complex. It is my assessment at this time that what needs to happen is a full frontal, no holds barred assault on the industry being shrouded by gender ideology. To do this, we must relinquish the ridiculous notion of transgenderism and transgender people. The word transgender was cultivated by the LGB non-governmental organizations and quietly added to the acronym in 2005. Five years earlier, the AIDS epidemic had just seen a sharp decline in two major LGBT NGOs in the United States were both formed by wealthy gay businessmen Tim Gill and John Stryker. John Stryker left Greenleaf Trust a major wealth management fund. He and Gill sunk at least a billion dollars of their own money into their LGBT NGOs initially to drive the legalization of same-sex marriage, which was procured in the U.S. in 2015. With same-sex marriage secured, the concept of transgenderism was dropped into American culture fully formed, and the propaganda around it has been relentless since. Recall first Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine in 2014, and then Bruce Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair in 2015. Transgenderism, now morphed into gender identity, is an ideology of disembodiment that is now driven by and invested in by the largest financial institutions in the world, Big Pharma and Big Tech. Gender is an obfuscation. What is happening in its name is a systematic deconstruction of sexual dimorphism. 
or the opening of new markets based on sexual identity. Lesbians, gays, and bisexuals in 2015 had a purchasing power of $900 billion in America. It is now a global market of $3.6 trillion. To open markets of sex as a sexually dimorphic species, there has to be more than two sexes. Capitalism forces the opening of markets for growth. It is the way the system is designed. Companies grow or they die. The sexes identity market that occurred when same-sex attraction was made into corporate identities and a constituency to be marketed to has been forced open with this notion of gender as identity or sex on a spectrum. It not only creates a multiplicity of identities to market to, but it creates lifelong medical patients. It is not a coincidence that John Stryker is heir to a fortune in Stryker Medical Corporation stock and uses that money to fund his LGBT NGO. This is corporate colonization of human sex. This is where our focus needs to be in resisting this ideology because this is a juggernaut being hidden by the human rights frame being fed to everyone. Arguing for women's rights versus trans rights supports a human rights premise. Everyone knows men don't belong in women's sports, prisons, rape crisis centers, etc. The only reason this is happening is because it opens markets. Women are the collateral damage, as always, in a system of unchecked capitalism. We must expose the industry, and toward that end, I have joined with Alex Aron of the Gender Mapper Project to create a global page for the 11th Hour blog. Where I have been exposing the industry predominantly from an American standpoint, the global page will be focusing on the worldwide gender industry and how it is manifesting in various countries. We invite journalists to contribute pieces for us to platform. They can make their submissions at the blog directly at the bottom of the global page, and I hope you'll join us there. Thank you. This has been a special report from the 11th Hour blog for WLRN, Women's Liberation Radio News, the original turf radio. Thanks, Jen. And now we turn to WLRN's World News segment with Emily Ann Lorenzen for this Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm Thistle Patterson. In South Korea, at least 12 companies have removed so-called feminist symbols from their products and issued an apology to male consumers. Since May, more than 20 brands and government organizations have removed feminist symbols from products after being pressured by anti-feminists. One particular symbol that has bruised the male ego is one of a hand facing sideways with a small space between the index finger and thumb. A disbanded online feminist community, Megalia, used the symbol to ridicule the size of Korean men's penises. Now, if that gesture appears anywhere in advertising, men cause an uproar. Roots of the anti-feminist movement in South Korea are men's fear that women will take their jobs in a competitive job market and that they will infiltrate the government and private sector with their feminist propaganda. These public apologies and removal of feminist symbols have created a hostile environment that makes women afraid to identify as feminists. A professor at Yonsei at University, 
compared this anti-feminist movement to the Red Scare of McCarthyism. In Papua New Guinea, a woman is beaten every 30 seconds, and more than 1.5 million women face sex-based violence each year. The pandemic has caused an increase in violence against women all over the world, including in Colombia, where there is a 90% impunity rate. Between May and June, at least five women have been attacked, and one has been killed by men accusing them of sorcery and Papua New Guinea. A parliamentary committee issued a report in August with 71 recommendations to Parliament to combat sex-based violence. The committee will hold a second set of hearings later this year on how the government can implement the recommendations. One of the members of the committee noted that the broken justice system and lack of resources, quote, has led to a culture of impunity, with perpetrators confident that they will never be brought to justice." Unquote. Public photos of women are being defaced in Jerusalem. Peggy Parnass is a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor whose image is displayed at the gateway to City Hall. Since her image was posted in April, vandals have spray-painted her eyes and mouth at least five times. Critics of the graffiti insist that these acts are not anti-Semitic, but that they are anti-feminist. The vandalism is done by a fringe, ultra-Orthodox community that values women's modesty, meaning keeping women covered and hidden away at home. This is a small population that is growing, and the Israel Democracy Institute states that the majority of Jerusalem's Jewish community is ultra-Orthodox. Women's images have been defaced on billboards in the city for at least 20 years. Women fear the consequences of having their image erased from the public square and argue that the government and police are not doing enough to investigate and stop this practice. The officer who raped and murdered Sarah Everard was sentenced to life in prison. He arrested Sarah under the pretense that she had broken COVID-19 rules but this was just an excuse to kidnap her. Her brutal death has shed light on the misogynistic culture of UK police officers. According to the femicide census, at least 16 women were killed by serving or retired police officers in the past 13 years. Hundreds of sex-based violence allegations are made against police officers every year. The Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill is moving through Parliament which would give more powers to the police, including stronger stop and search powers. There's hope that Sarah's case will spur increased resistance to this bill. An anonymous woman told CNN, quote, there's a kind of myth in this country of policing by consent, that the police are able to exercise force over us because they have the confidence of the public because we consented to it. In the case of Sarah Reed, a victim of police brutality who died in prison, it's used to beat us up. In the case of Sarah Everard, it's used to kill us. We do not consent to have force used against us in the name of our own protection." Unquote. Similarly in the US, the murder of Gabby Petito by her fiance has brought attention to the country's femicide problem. FBI statistics reveal that the majority of women murdered in the U.S. are killed by current or former intimate partners. According to the CDC, 
Homicide is the fourth leading cause of death for girls and women 1 to 19 years old, and the fifth leading cause of death for women 20 to 44 years old. The National Indigenous Women's Resource Center reports that the homicide rate for Indigenous women and girls in the U.S. is six times higher than it is for white women and girls, and 94% of cases are attributed to former or current partners. Femicide in the U.S. is a topic rarely discussed, and many people seem to believe it is a problem only other countries face. Wake up, America. It's time to fight for women's sex-based rights. Speaking of sex-based rights, on October 2nd, multiple protests took place across the U.S. in response to an anti-abortion bill that was passed in Texas on September 1st. The law bans abortions after six weeks, when a fetal heartbeat can be detected, and it puts a $10,000 bounty on the head of abortion providers or anyone who helps a woman obtain an abortion after six weeks. The Texas law is the most restrictive abortion law in the country, and it is one of a series of cases that will put Roe v. Wade to the test in the Supreme Court. Our own Thistle Pedersen protested in Madison, Wisconsin, and this is what she and another Wisconsin protester had to say. This is Thistle from Madison. I joined five other Wisconsinites on Library Mall to march up State Street to the Capitol in a group of six on October 2nd with the Women's March, a pro-abortion rights event called Bands Off Our Bodies. We were five women and one man who is a member of the Milwaukee Area Green Party. We were greeted by a crowd of about four or five hundred that included two protesters who rode their bicycles up close to our line and shouted, Get out, Nazis! and Fuck TERFs! Most of the other marchers were either friendly or curious, while some were cold and tried to block our signs from view. Our main message was, abortion access for all women now, which was on the gender critical greens banner our group agreed to carry for this occasion. We did not unfurl our adult human female banner until later, but I guess our greens banner and one group member's adult human female t-shirt was enough to set off this initial attack on us at the event. In addition to the bike riders screaming at us, two women wearing black with a bullhorn went by about 20 minutes later and started the chant, Trans women are women, after shouting, Fuck TERFs. After the band played, a speaker made clear that, quote, transphobia is not welcomed, to cheers and clapping from the crowd. The march started moving up State Street shortly after that. We stood our ground despite other protesters attempting to block our entry into the march. We made it all the way to the Capitol, marching with our giant adult human female banner without wavering. Local reporters from the Wisconsin State Journal chose to use the picture of a young protester wearing a trans flag like a cape instead of highlighting a pro-woman flag in this supposedly pro-woman march. This same protester walked by our line twice appearing to seethe and shake with rage. The Raging Grannies, a group of older women, were present, about 15 of them. They largely ignored us or physically tried to keep our signs out of pictures. The local activist group Forward Marching Band, when playing We Are Family, a song from the 1970s black female pop band Sister Sledge, erased the word sister, replacing it with everybody, to hit the point home that it is, quote, pregnant people who need abortions and not just women. 
All in all, it was a great experience to be flanked by my sisters and to make clear to the world that we are pro-woman and pro-choice. My name's Kim. I'm from uh, the La Crosse area of Wisconsin. I was at the protest on um, October 2nd along with Thistle and four other women. This is maybe my fourth or fifth women's rights protest. It's probably the first time that I've, I've had this many in-person interactions with people. I've, I've had a lot of cars drive by me before, but this is the first time I've been on foot speaking face-to-face with people. Some of my main takeaways were um, how much people misunderstand who we are and where we're coming from. Um, I think one of the things that I noticed most was that I was asked over and over um, whether I was religiously affiliated, whether I was right-wing affiliated, and people were actually concerned that I might be part of the pro-life contingent. And I want to, to talk about that because I think that that misconception is not an accident at all. We're, we're obviously dealing with a very deliberate campaign to malign us and to misrepresent us as, as right-wing conservative religious zealots. Um, and I think that you can break down that misconception into two pieces. We have some people who are very deliberately trying to misrepresent who we are. They know that we're a group of women from the left. We are pro-women's abortion rights. We are pro-women's rights in general. And they want to keep that quiet. But then we have another group of people who I think we actually can make connections to. These people have just been, they have only a surface level understanding of why we are gender critical. What what does gender critical mean? And what does it have to do with women's sex based rights as a whole? Um, And I think it's really important to speak to those people about that. So, I mean... The first thing that I wanted to make clear every time I was speaking to someone about this is that we're standing here for abortion because this is a women's biological issue. This isn't based on our identity. Having abortion rights restricted is not something that is happening because we identify as women. This has nothing to do with our manner of dress or our mannerisms. This has to do with our biology. And that's crystal clear. Even among the trans activists, they know that because they're saying Trans men need abortions too. Non-binary people need abortions too. And that's because they know that even when you identify out of womanhood, you know, you retain your biology. And that that means that this is a matter of sex-based rights. This is a matter of biology. And so at a time when we're seeing references to the word woman and to feminine pronouns and to any kind of female biological language, we're seeing that erased by the Lancet, the Medical Journal of the Lancet, when we're seeing the ACLU doing this, and we're seeing a lot of even women's rights organizations doing this, we need to make it crystal clear that we are here standing for the rights of all women and girls, no matter how they identify, to access abortions. And we want everyone to understand that our abortion rights are not being restricted because of how we identify. They are being restricted because of our biology. And that's not something you can change with language or how you describe yourself. I spoke to Joy Gray from Rev Fem Rebellion about her experience at the Women's March in Austin, Texas. She said that it was difficult to find signs in the crowd with the word woman on them. There were mostly references to reproductive rights and uteruses. Wait, who is it that reduces women to their body parts again? Well, she and a group of eight women came in with their turf gear. Shirts with messages like, woman, adult, human, female. Pins that said, keep prison single sex and save women's sports. And signs that advocated for women's rights. Joyce said that it was hard to find men in the crowd, but once she and her group were being harassed for standing up for women's sex-based rights, men yelled directly in their faces. 
She said the men and their handmaidens verbally harassed, pushed, and hit the women on the head with their signs. Even though Joy's group did not bring up trans issues, the common mantra of trans women or women was shouted at them. She said there was only one trans-identified female who came up and shouted that this trans man needs an abortion, but she noted that no one joined in the chant. Make no mistake, this is a men's rights movement, Joy said. She expressed that the experience of being harassed by an angry group of faux feminists and the men they worship was one of the most terrifying and empowering things she's ever done. The group stayed together and kept each other safe, and they opted to be escorted by police out of the Women's March. That's right, women had to be escorted by police to feel safe while leaving an event for women's rights. Joyce said she feels energized by the power of sisterhood and that she is ready to keep fighting. You can check out an interview I did with Joy on our YouTube channel at Women's Liberation Radio News. Here's a clip of the confrontation in Austin. On September 27th, Thistle Pedersen faced charges of disorderly conduct with a hate crime enhancer for allegedly placing stickers on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin. The sticker in question said Turf Collective on it and was allegedly placed on an Our Lives magazine media box on the corner of Dayton and State Street. Police combed through social media posts and film footage of the area to identify Pedersen in order to file the charges. The charges with a possible felony charge were dismissed at Pedersen's preliminary court appearance on freedom of speech grounds. The prosecuting attorney conceded that the charges were incongruent with the law that does not include gender identity as a category. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm Emily Ann Lorenzen. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at womensliberationradionews.com and let us know what's going on.
That was Flying Lesbians with their song, Wir sind die homosexuellen Frauen. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Julia Beck did with Manuela Kai about the Berlin Dyke March and the topic of lesbian visibility. Manuela is the co-owner of Elmag, Germany's largest lesbian magazine with readers in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So we published Siegesäule magazine in Berlin. Siegesäule is a queer city magazine. It's been around since 1984. And it's the city magazine with the highest circulation in Berlin. And the other magazine we publish is Elmag, a German white lesbian magazine that's been around since 2003. So that's what we publish here and we do some other side things, but that's what I do and I'm co-CEO of the company, I own half of it. I've been working here since 1996. I used to be chief editor of Siegesäule, then we founded Elmac, then I used to be chief editor of Elmac. And uh, a little bit more than nine years ago, me and my colleague Gudrun founded a new company and bought the magazines and now it's ours and it's the only I think lesbian owned and led uh, LGBT company of this size and of this influence in Germany. How did Elmag come about? Actually when I started working for Siegesäule it was a gay men's magazine. I added the lesbian part of it or queered it up because I don't believe in, in segregation of lesbian and gay and so I wanted it to be queer but it was too early for queer so it was from gay German schwul into schwul lesbisch gay and lesbian magazine and it was very well received in Berlin um, it was very successful and the circulation went up and the number of pages was growing and so one day the gay owner back then of the magazine asked me what do lesbians read if they not live in Berlin and don't have access to Siegesäule and he proposed why don't we start a lesbian magazine. So we did. And I was just editor then, I didn't own any of this. I just, you know, made him rich basically. <laughs> But now you are... Not rich. <laughs> <laughs> Has it grown over time, the amount of readers? That depends. When we started it in 2003, I wouldn't say that the, there was a huge desire because the possibility of a lesbian magazine didn't even occur to people. So first, Elmick was free. Like, we, we tried to uh, use the Siegesäule system for Elmick. It didn't work. After struggling for two years, we turned it into a you know regular magazine that you can buy at the newsstand. And from then on, it uh, became successful, funny enough. They didn't want it for free. They didn't take it seriously. Who? The lesbian readership. Plus, Siegesäule exists entirely on advertisement. 
and we just couldn't exist with Elmec on advertising because there was no you know lesbian owned company or other companies that wanted to address lesbian target audience with their advertisement so we had to make the lesbians pay themselves you know which worked out fine i have to say but in the beginning as i said in 2003 um we distributed it uh by hand at the gay pride parties and and marches and and it was really weird because a lot of lesbian pride visitors didn't want it they said no i don't want what is this they didn't trust it only in Berlin, because they were used to Siegesäule and they trusted a, a gay or queer or gay and lesbian publication, they trusted that this isn't a fraud or it isn't like a, some straight porn magazine or something, so oh they God. trusted it. But outside of Berlin, it was really hard to build up that trust that we could actually make a lesbian magazine. But the distrust was quite uh, huge in the beginning because lesbians and media is not a good history. Yeah. And just because there's somebody, you know, handing out some free lesbian paper, they were not that excited. Mm. It's Germany after all. You know, people are not very open-minded and they're very hesitant, taking things from strangers, talking to strangers, all that. Some women were so shocked that we wanted to give them something, they just turned away without any comment. They would just run away, you know, yeah. And 2005, we started bi-monthly at the newsstand. All over Germany or just yeah. in Berlin? Germany and Switzerland and Austria, all German-speaking Europe. So that is a wide readership. Um, it's interesting that this changed over time, that women were very apprehensive to even engage with the publication. Do you see that this is a reflection of an unwillingness in the scene to be out and loud? Was it difficult to come out? For me, it was not difficult to come out because I grew up in Berlin. I kind of knew where to go. So when I was 15, I went to the lesbian bar and that was it, you know, <laughs> very simple. And um, I went to my first gay pride, I think when I was 16. So I grew up in the right spot. But I always found that lesbians are, unfortunately, uh, a lot of times very uptight and very frightened of all sorts of things. I mean, of course, there's a history to that, but I have to say, after all these decades of being in the community and being active there and being part of the lesbian scene in Berlin, it's tough. There are so many little wars in the lesbian community that is really, really frustrating. There's, um, of course, good things like the Dyke March that I organize for eight years now. That's a very good experience. That's like the opposite of what I just said. So Dyke March, I don't know why, but it seems like the Dyke March is happening in a complete different kind of galaxy. I don't know why, but there everything is just pleasant and everybody's nice to each other. Everybody's talking to each other. People come up to me and thank me for the organization and people donate money and are grateful and nice and flirty and everything you want them to be. I heard that you brought this to Berlin from 
the states. Is that true? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I did. Um, what was the thought process? Well, I went to my first dike march in New York in 1994 um, for the Stonewall 25 anniversary and it empowered me ever after, you know, it was uh, an experience that I thought, wow, so this is possible, so this is what it could feel like. And then a couple of years later, I was at a dike march in San Francisco, uh, which is even bigger. And then we had Elmag's, I think, 10th anniversary. And we were thinking about what to do, just, you know, having a regular party or what can you do with a magazine anniversary. So we discussed this in the LMAC team and said, well, LMAC stands for Lesbian Visibility. So what could we do that is like the synonym for Lesbian Visibility? And I thought, Dyke March. And I, and I said it and everybody was, yeah, great, let's do this. And so we organized the first Dyke March in Berlin in 2013. We weren't quite sure if we could actually get the lesbians up from their couch and into the street. So the first Dyke March had like 1,500 people, which was good for the first time. So it grew ever since. The year after, Hamburg and Cologne started their own Dyke Marches, and now there's like 15 different Dyke Marches in Europe. So I think that's a good sign. Would you say that this one in Berlin was the inspiration for these others? Yes, I think you can say that. I see. I have my own feeling, but can you describe what this was like? To be surrounded by so many people, to be in a parade where it's okay to be you? Well, I think it's like little coming outs, you know, one after the other. I think my first gay pride in Berlin, here it's called Christopher Street Day, uh, in Berlin, in West Berlin, the first Pride March was held in 1979, mm. and I think my first one was 80, I believe 81 or 82. Here? Here in Berlin, West Berlin back then, and we were maybe a thousand people, mm. but it was still so uplifting and so so exciting i was so enthusiastic about it that we visibly march through the streets and you know show ourselves back then uh, many people wore masks not because of any virus but they didn't want to they were just afraid to be recognized as gay men or lesbian women was there a different um, legal status to homosexuals in the west compared to the east um, could could you get in trouble for this for marching? Not legally, but okay. you know it wasn't very popular to be gay. Let's say this, and you could lose your job not because of the law, but because people would just treat you like shit, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, and then when I uh, was at my first Pride march in the U.S., I always had the dream I wanted want to be at the real thing in New York because that's where it all started and where the origin was so I always wanted to be part of a gay pride in New York so I went in 84 
But first I went to um, to Boston, Massachusetts. They had their pride like two weeks before, I think, because I have many friends there. There I was so shocked that it was like 10,000 people in, in the early 80s in Boston. It was so much bigger than in Berlin. I was so excited about gay pride in Boston even. And then two weeks later I went to New York and marched with 100,000 people down Fifth Avenue. And I, I couldn't believe what I did and I, that was like a new coming out kind of feeling you know because it, it was like okay this is possible this is happening this is a feeling that I never had before that we're not just a few people but we can be masses and we can have fun and we take the streets and this is powerful and this is fun and this is just great you know and then, of course, Stonewall 25 in 1994, we were one million people in New York marching no the street. Yeah. Wow. And again, I felt like I had never had, <laughs> never saw a gay pride before because this was like so huge and so important. And, you know, like even things like the Empire State Building was uh, uh, in, in, we didn't have that much rainbow colors back then, it was just pink. But, what? Yeah, it was light oh. and pink. Yeah. For us here in Europe, we saw the Empire State Building in like a million films. It's like the symbol for something. And then it, that, as a as a tribute to, to gay people and Stonewall, was so amazing. And uh, back then in the 90s, we were far from from having some you know official recon recognition in, in Germany in terms of rainbow flags on public buildings or anything like that. So uh, each of these events, they're very, very empowering for me. I hear you when you talk about the rainbow flags everywhere. I seem to see them everywhere I look here in Berlin. Yeah, it's a huge inflation. Yeah. Yes, yes. Do you think that this helps lesbian visibility, specifically lesbian visibility? Or I can rephrase the question, what helps lesbian visibility? And what does that even mean, actually? Uh, visible lesbians, not rainbow flags. I mean, they don't hurt. And uh, <laughs> they, they empower lesbians who see them. So that's good, but that's not enough. Um, mm. I think lesbian visibility, which I'm tired of saying, because lesbian visibility as such sounds so lame, and that's not enough for me. Being visible is not enough. Mm. And still we're not even that. Um, so uh, I find that very frustrating that we have to fight for visibility. But yeah, here we are, and my approach is that we need, we need to go back to subversion, which we kind of had in the 70s and 80s and a bit in the 90s and then came gay marriage and destroyed everything everything we fought for is gone and now lesbians are only portrayed as mothers and as couples and in their little bourgeois houses and with their gardens and i think lesbian visibility needs more than just you know, lesbians talking about love and children and family. The whole love thing is so going on my nerves. You know, love is love, I can't hear that anymore. Because that's so unpolitical. It's mm. not about love. I mean, I'm still a political person whether I'm being loved or not. And 
being gay has sometimes to do with love, but most of the time it does not. And it's not who I love or who loves me, but who I am and who I desire much more than who I love. If it turns out to be love at some point, fine, or catastrophe either way, but love is, it seems like the new currency, you know? You cannot be against us because love is love. It's like we're little pets and just want to be, you know, like, oh, please love me, I'm so harmless. I'm sick of that. And I think lesbian visibility needs more. We need to be dangerous again. This is Joe Brew. You are listening to WLRN. That was Die Zeit steht still from Zucker Club. Now we turn to an interview Julia did with Judith about the lesbian culture that thrived in the 1980s and 90s in Berlin, Germany. Judith also offers some commentary on the state of things in the lesbian scene today. How did you come to feminism? Uh, feminism. Actually, feminism was never, ever my issue. <laughs> I Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I don't call myself a feminist up to now. I'm a lesbian, but that includes feminism. That's what follows, naturally. And so I never considered myself a feminist fighter. I was a lesbian and I was out from day one. And I had to live with all that meant at the time in the 70s and later in the 80s. Questions, how do you do it, may I ask? I've lived through all that as an out dyke and saying, look, this is who I am, this is what I do, and I do not hide behind a fake boyfriend or anything. I'm out there and you have to deal with me. Were you involved in any women's groups, lesbian projects, something like this? Later, I mean, in the 80s, 90s, I think it was, I was part of the Lesbian Week in Berlin and I was interested in it and I, you know, I was close to it. I attended and I helped. Lesbian Week, that used to be a week where women organized workshops and all kinds of things for lesbians and lesbians would come from all over the German-speaking countries. We had workshops in English, so that sometimes depended on what the issue was we were talking about. 
uh, came from other countries as well. That was really lovely. And it was in the beginning, it was just lesbians, completely without Ys, <laughs> like as in XY. Yeah. There okay. were only XX women. And then at some point, the trans identified males started coming to the lesbian week and they wanted access because they claimed to be lesbians. Even 30 years ago, I was angry just by the thought of it. And then they took over. They actually were in the organizing team. And at first there were two dykes and a man. I seem to remember that one of the women didn't have that. And she dropped out. And then another man was in the orca group. So we had an orca group for the lesbian week with two men and one woman who was, you know, like making do with the situation. And that was really difficult. I mean, that wasn't a lesbian week where I was in the organizing team or anything, but I was always there. I was there and I got all that, the shouting and the me, me, me by the men who said, oh, I'm a lesbian and you don't accept us. And we said, well, you're not. I mean, it started then what happened to the LFT this year. Some of us were like, inviting-ish and said, okay, but we were talking about, you know, women's experiences with, I don't know, sexual attacks and God knows what. So we didn't want to be with men, period. And they got a different socialization, so they wouldn't know what we were talking about. A man doesn't know what it means if if you get touched all the time or if you if you are scared at night to walk through a park or they wouldn't know how, how it feels if you bleed and you don't check your knickers and then, you know, you have to go home because you haven't got a change of clothes with you and you are embarrassed like hell because you bled through. They don't know what that means. So we said, no, we don't want you here. This is not your place. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't budge. Like it's nowadays, only now it's even more aggressive. What I did was at some point I said, lesbian woche is male now, I don't go. And the lesbian woche died. I mean, we had two problems. We had discussions because we had this race issue. The black women and white women had a fight because, you know, Black women didn't feel acknowledged by white women. Then they withdrew and they did their own thing. And there was one lesson with that issue. And there were a lot of women's groups like black women only and white women felt excluded. And it was difficult. And unfortunately, when I look around, I got the impression that it's still two movements, if you want. It's the white women and the black women, and hardly ever do we work together. And then we tried, we really tried, we tried to get together or even to stay apart in order to look at our own issues. And I think, well, now, so many years later, it would be lovely if we could just meet up. And it was because of not just men coming in, but there were also disagreements among the lesbians. So racism was a topic. The male colonization was a topic. Yeah, I would say both. Yeah, Lesbian week is one thing, but 
we used to have three bookstores, female bookstores. We used to have more than one bar for women and lesbians. We used to have clubs for women and lesbians. Mind you, women don't have as much money as men have. So in order for the clubs to survive, the women had to open their doors for friends, for gay friends. So the women club now with gay friends. Okay, gay friends. How do you tell someone is gay? So in the end, in one of my favorite clubs, I was dancing there and then I looked and there was a hetero couple, you know, making out. And I thought, what the heck? I can see them everywhere. If I am in a women's come lesbian place, I don't want heteros to show me this. I, I don't want this. <laughs> so, and other women thought that as well. The guys were only asked in in order to pay because otherwise the club wouldn't have survived. So we always had to live with the idea that men will be there because they bring the money. They earn more. And if a gay couple lives together, they've got a lot of money, they can drink a lot. And women sometimes just drank one beer, one Coke or so. The whole night they stayed there for five hours and just had one drink because they couldn't afford to drink more. Some could, of course, but generally speaking, you can see that that was an issue. So, yeah, it's heartbreaking, but that's how all the projects in the end, basically, were taken over by men, more or less. I heard a lot about the consciousness raising groups that women formed in the 70s. These groups of women who got together and they just talked about everything. Yes. Did that happen here? 70s. Oh, the 70s were like El Dorado. I, mean, I was kind of a bit too young, unfortunately. <laughs> I saw the end of it. But um, yeah, we had this nice pub, a women's pub. It was called Blocksberg. You know, the Blocksberg is the hill where the witches meet. And the women there were kind of tough. And then it's not in a posh area or so. At the beginning of the Yorkbrücken, there it was, and the Yorkbrücken were famous for, you know, women shouldn't go there, they get raped and, you know, like all kinds of things. But anyway, there was the Blocksberg, and the drunken guys would come to the Blocksberg, knock at the door, and I want to in, yeah! And we were like, no, you're not coming in, and women were tough, right? open door, kick ass kind of mentality that was brilliant. You know, I grew into this kind of idea of we have to fight and we have to say, no, this is our place. And it worked, I can tell you that. And there was this one disco. When you came in, it was called Poor El. It was a lesbian bar. And when you came in, at that bar, the women were sitting who were like butchers or farms. You could tell those were the butchers. And the butchers would not allow, when you come into that place, the butchers wouldn't allow you to smile at their girlfriends, their farms. 
you wouldn't see the end of it if you did. I always snuck through in order not to get into any, you know, <laughs> problems with the butchers there. It was so funny. You can't imagine nowadays. They were tough ladies and they were watching over their uh, ladies. Okay, there's this butch who pumps herself up like, oh, uh, but often the tough ladies are the farms. But the butchers were the ones that looked like strong kind of wannabe men. They weren't. They didn't want to be men. They were just women, you know, like expressing their lesbianism that way. But it's really funny because I passed as a butch kind of uh, lesbian. I never called myself a butch, but people would, would see that in me. And I always said, no, I don't want to be put in one of those categories. I'm me. I'm a lesbian, period. I wear jeans or leather jacket, but I do not want to be a man. But anyway, there were those clubs where you could find that, uh, if you want, role play. It sounds very appropriate for the kind of Berlin that has this reputation of being really heavy on S and M, BDSM, oh, that kind oh, of that's stuff. Disgusting. This is new. I do not want to hurt anybody and I do not want to, uh, nah, it's not my kind of thing. But anyway, for me, that I came in contact with that kind of thing uh, was in the 90s, not before that really. There was a strong movement and I think it's still there when I listen to people talking, I think, oh, it still seems to be an issue. But that's not my Berlin in the 70s and 80s. But at some point, I left all that. I mean, mind you, there weren't any proper women's clubs left. And what's happening now in Berlin is, it seems that there are no lesbian spaces anymore at all. You know, there is one bar in Berlin. Well, that's called the women's bar, and it is. But even there, there are... Occasionally, men in dresses. We can't really be safe. I mean, the other day there was this dike march. We've got a dike march in Berlin. And I was thinking about going to the dike march. And then I thought, oh, I don't trust myself to go to the dike march because I don't want to go alone. Because what I am going to wear is my T-shirt saying woman, adult, human, female. And I actually got scared. I actually got scared and I thought, I, as a lesbian, I can't go to a dyke march, of all things, because I'm scared to get beaten up, because I claim I'm a woman, and women are adult human females. Actually, what I would like women to do is support each other, and that means in this day and age, information has to get out there.
That was Anfang Bonhof Zoo from Nina Hagen. Now we turn to an interview Julia Beck did with Inga Kleiner, an active member of KOFRA, K-O-F-R-A, the Communication Center for Women in Munich, Germany. Ingo speaks about abolitionist protests, the role of lesbians in organizing movements, as well as the website Ich hab nicht Eigenzeit, translation I did not report, a campaign to break the taboo of reporting sexual violence. I'd always focused on women and girls in my life. I mean, I was interested in what women were doing, what girls were doing. I tried to get everything about women's history, which I could in Munich University, where there was hardly anything. And at Munich University, there was some change. It was very conservative. Mentioning the word woman in your papers was a career killer. You weren't taken seriously. But at the same time, some women had organized Women's Studies Week. So Women's Studies Week had dark blue papers and printed in black, good idea, telling you what kind of lectures, what kind of activities for women's studies, women's history, etc. And lesbians had done it as well, but lesbians had taken bright yellow papers. So every woman with the lesbian agenda schedule offers had a bright yellow paper. And so we started seeing who was a lesbian and who wasn't. Sometimes they're shoving those down into their bags really fast, but this was how we could meet, and that's how I met a lot of friends as well. So I'm really grateful to the students who organized it and to those who decided that the lesbians would have bright yellow papers. Talk about lesbian visibility, huh? <laughs> oh, yes, it was certainly <laughs> flashy. <laughs> so I stayed in academia in my ivory tower, and later on things became better because university opened itself to gender studies. And I know why radical feminists react as we do when we hear gender studies instead of women's studies. But Munich had never had women's studies. So gender studies was the only way you could get the word woman or female or femininity, if you wanted to research it, into the title of your master's degree paper or even a PhD thesis. In 2011, I resurfaced. And you might remember Dominique Strauss-Kahn in Nafisa Tudialo, when a woman, a hotel employee, charged a very powerful French man, um, head of the International Monetary Fund, with rape. To me, that was really a wake-up call. And it was the media coverage which really got me. The media were ready to believe any kind of crazy idea, presenting her as a brainless person in the hands of some sort of mafia, a tool to harm a poor, rich, white man. The woman seeking justice... And then an entire establishment, media including, rushing out to crush her. So that got me into Kofra in Munich, the communication centre for women where I now still am active. At the same time in Britain, a woman who called herself London Feminist on Twitter had launched a hashtag. It began hashtag I did not report it. And she just very briefly described why she had not reported a rape. It was quite a campaign. Hashtag after hashtag, I did not report it because, because he was my sister's best friend, because I had let him into my house. All of these very ordinary, everyday situations. And then there's a rape, and why do women not report it? French women had taken it up because they were working around rape. And we got into contact, especially with the French group, saying, can we steal your idea? And took it up in German. It became, ich habe nicht angezeigt. 
And it was actually the first social media campaign for a non-governmental cause, for a political cause in Germany ever. So, which, which we didn't know at the time, we just started a website where women, everybody really, although we focused on women, but it was open to all, could anonymously but publicly declare, I did not report it and just describe what happened. We also put um, the beginning of these texts on Facebook and streamed them on Twitter. It took off like anything. I mean, within one week, a newspaper in Austria picked it up. After two weeks, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is one of the two huge papers in Germany, picked it up. At the end of the six weeks, we had more than a thousand people who had described, or women mostly, who had described what had happened. Half described assaults as children and assaults in families. The material helped propel forward a movement we had to change the sexual crimes laws in Germany. And in 2016, there was finally a change, which again stressed that if a woman says no, or if anyone says no, it should be enough. But that was how I entered feminism again. And after that, I stayed with Kofra. There was One Billion Rising in 2013, which I helped co-organize. And the first women's demonstration in Munich for decades, which had maybe 300, 400 people. So it doesn't sound much, but the last demonstrations by women had had about 20 conferences and seminars and writing on blogs, for example, in Germany, the Störenfrieders, which was set up by friends, and it's the one radical feminist blog we have, at a time when in Germany everybody was telling us that prostitution was an aspect of sexual liberation, really. So the Störenfried is coming in and saying, no, pornography is violence against women, prostitution is violence against women, and highlighting a lot of feminist causes, websites dedicated to prostitution, to make people understand what the Swedish approach to prostitution is, and having meetings, conferences, simply to get out knowledge, to try to influence public opinion, making people understand that prostitution is not fun at games. This is similar to the way that I saw the Me Too movement picking up steam in, in the States at first and then mm-hmm. elsewhere. Yes, Me Too was two years later. Ours was in 2012. And then Germany had something called Aufschrei, about a woman also talking about molestation. But when you work with a website, um, you can see how many people watched it, how many people looked at it during a day. And you can also see if they found your website through another website. And you can find out who put links up. And I remember going through and seeing police North Rhine-Westphalia. Oops, why is police on our website? And they had actually linked to it because they had a part of their own website dedicated to prevention of sexual violence against children. And they had linked to our website because they thought it was important. So it also helped advocacy groups doing work about sexual assault against children. It's still active. And I think it is still being used for research. Is that a website hosted by Kafra? No, because we were just three. Um, we could host it as CO Kofra, which was important because Kofra, when anybody researches it, they can find it's a women's advocacy centre in Munich. It's financed by the city of Munich. So, you know, okay, it's some kind of social work thing financed by the city of Munich, which means you can trust it in a certain way, not just three random women doing a website. The women who, or men or people who answered could just enter a comment and hit send, and it would go online immediately. Because we said, we believe you. 
tell us what happened. Tell us about your assault and we believe you. So women wrote about what had happened. And two hours later, an, an email would arrive, the same woman detailing it again and more. Or sometimes we could link up students who had been molested by professors and their stories or experiences are so incredibly similar. But at least we could also help connect women to try to do something about universities. And in a way, that was really lovely because at the time we felt we were really doing something which helped. I still like to think back to it because we started it and we really just wanted people to understand what rape is and how it works. And we walked into it a bit unprepared for what activism means and also how systematic the violence is. You think you know, but we don't really know unless we've seen it up close. And there were all of these studies. There's a study, an EU-wide study made by the British sociologist Liz Kelly and other sociologists looking at rape and attrition and court cases and court proceedings in several European countries, I think 13 European countries. And it's the same in all of these countries, although the legal systems are different. In Germany, the current rate is, I believe, still about between 1% and 2% of rapes end up in a conviction. We had all of these studies, all of that knowledge, which is out. I mean, states spent taxpayers' money on having it researched, and nobody seemed to know about it. But there was a strong push toward the Nordic model, right, which is somewhat of a different topic, but it's still involving rape, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Can you talk about the activism supporting that and... What is the current state of things right now in Germany? Well, in 2013, only a very, very small group of women or persons had ever heard of the Nordic model. At first, zero understanding of our proposition. A large push, however, and an important one in the EU parliament, led by a British woman, a woman from Labour, Mary Honeyball, who got a resolution passed which stated that prostitution is violence and a hindrance to equality. But it's only a resolution. It tells us what overall the European Parliament thought or thinks of prostitution. It's not binding. Right now, things have improved in Germany. More people know what the Nordic model is. And it's absolutely clear that the very romanticized ideas of a kind of woman who's very independent in her sexuality, that is gone to a certain degree. People are aware of trafficking, people are aware of coercion, people are aware of poverty as a reason to get into prostitution. Public opinion has changed a lot. In 2013, we took part in a demonstration, a women's demonstration on the 8th of March. So 8th of March, Women's Day demonstration in Berlin. We were nine of us having a banner saying there's no fair trade in sex trade, stop prostitution. And we carried posters with quotes from punters because there are forums on the internet where punters describe the women they used. Also, again, started by a feminist in Britain in her Invisible Men project, where she put up punters' quotes on an anonymous website. And we found it for Germany. Lobbyists from the sex trade came to see us before the demonstration started, tried to stare us down, which didn't work. So they stood in front of us, staring at us. We stood there looking back. Finally, they left. Nobody said anything. On Twitter, we could see they were mobilizing against us, saying, OK, there is an abolitionist block. We're going to be waiting for these abolitionists. 
And as we walked into that demonstration, they suddenly came towards us, surrounded us with large banners to make us invisible, sprayed uh, yellow paint on our posters, and that was about it. They pushed us a bit, but not much. And we just stood still. We didn't move. The entire demonstration was held up for 30 minutes. People kept coming closer and closer and closer because it was like a jam. Finally, after 30 minutes, an order person from the demonstration told the group to go away. They posted photos. They said, here, we have surrounded the abolitionist block. We looked at our posters and thought, why, why did they spray those in yellow? If you want to destroy something, you'd take black, wouldn't you? Or some dark. Of course, the yellow was intended to be a golden shower. This kind of idea to spray some ejaculation-like bit on the quotes made by punters actually made those posters even look better. And the next day we found that our group of women was mentioned in the Tuts paper, first paragraph in a very neoliberal pseudo-leftist paper, the Tuts, nine women out of a demonstration of 5,000, and it was our demand that got most attention. Before that demonstration, nobody in Germany had any idea what an abolitionist was. Now they knew what an abolitionist was. So our first encounter with these groups, although it was a bit frightening, I mean, being surrounded and all, it was one of our greatest victories. The push now and the situation now is um, among the Christian conservatives, Christian social party, who are conservative, but conservative in a European context, a large group of women passed a resolution saying they want the Nordic model, but the Liberals and the Greens are still very committed to a free kind of sex trade. What is happening is that they are now ready to build up, to fund more advocacy centres, to fund better exit options, to find better ways for women exiting prostitution. But it is a very green response. You depoliticize it. It's no longer political. It's just more like charity now. The same development which was taken by many rape centres, rape crisis centres in Germany, or domestic violence shelters, they will provide help to the individual woman, but there's no political analysis behind it. And I think that's how they want to deal with prostitution now as well. It is a bit like a military hospital in a war. You stitch people up so you can send them back into the fight, and it's what it seems to me like. And you've got to work to end the war if you want to end it. So right now I'm seeing an increase in social work or a readiness to fund it, but still majority in Germany, politically speaking at least, not a will to end it. But the group wanting to end it is growing significantly. In your opinion, how have lesbians been involved? I do think it is a very common thing because when we're really talking about radical feminism and activism, when I think of the types of women who did it, I think lesbians are often both at the margin of society, but also sometimes quite central to it, even if being a lesbian is not very accepted and single women aren't accepted. I mean, a lot of discrimination directed against um, lesbian women is also directed against older single women. If you're a lesbian, you know you don't want to get married. You'll have a job. You'll have to be self-sufficient. You don't usually marry. You often don't have children. And I believe lesbians are sometimes more independent than heterosexual women. I mean, it's not true for every individual, but I do believe we have more to gain and better access to analysing society because there's not so much we need to question. I mean, not so much in our own lives. 
part of it is also simply due to Kofra, which was founded in 82, 1982 and still exists. And I know it was a meeting place for women. And especially before the internet, but even now, that's so important to have a place in a city where you can go. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to book it, or if you book it, it's a phone call, but you don't have to pay for this room. You don't have to buy a drink. You have a whole library. These days you have a computer. You even have women who know about organizing if you want to do it. And just being able to go there to meet women, women you've never met before, to start discussing things, to go for consciousness raising, and from that to go to activism is what helped every feminist institution, advocacy center, whatever it is we have in Munich today, was yeah. founded by a lesbian, lesbians, or at least a group with lesbians. So um, even if it wasn't, if, even if it's not a lesbian advocacy center, I mean, from domestic violence to everything, it's lesbians, lesbians, lesbians. Compared with heterosexual women, lesbians have much less energy diverted towards husbands and children. And I think this is one of the benefits that oh, we yes. can use in our activism. And that's my dream. I mean, working towards a society, organizing it around the needs and demands and wishes of women. And of course, if you're a lesbian, women are always at the center of your vision. I mean, when you walk into a room, you see a lot of women and sometimes men standing in your way. I think it is true in politics as well. Of course, we center women. We are not interested in what men do. Just looking at women, wanting to be with women, but also seeing women at the center of our world means we want to have this kind of world, the kind of society which is organized not around the needs of a man, but the needs of a woman. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's, Women's Liberation, Liberation Radio, Radio, Radio News. News. Where are all the lesbians? It's a question some of us ask out of desperation, anger, curiosity. Sometimes it's hard to recognize each other, especially when the world around us, our frame of reference, can change overnight. And that was definitely the case in Germany over the last few generations. Let's look briefly back in time, starting in 1918, when World War I ended. Instead of being ruled by an emperor or Kaiser, Germany was governed as a democracy called the Weimar Republic. In the same year, women in Germany were granted the right to vote, thanks to tireless efforts of activists and organizers like Anita Augsburg, Clara Zetkin, and Louise Otto Peters. The next decade is called the Golden Twenties, and much like the Roaring Twenties in the States, it was a kind of artistic renaissance. People experimented with new art forms like Bauhaus and burlesque, but this time was also marked by extreme economic insecurity. Germany was in debt after the war, and the actual value of the money, the mock, could fluctuate wildly from day to day. So people lived it up when they could. In the golden 20s, lesbian communities and networks flourished in Germany, especially in big cities like Berlin and Munich. Lesbians founded social clubs and associations to foster connections. The most famous lesbian associations were the Violetta and Montbijou Ladies Clubs in Berlin. These groups held informal gatherings in lesbian bars and nightclubs. Meeting places for lesbians were advertised in the lesbian press. Lesbian journals contributed to the growth of lesbian networks. 
Among these were Frauenliebe, Women's Love, and Die Freundin, The Girlfriend. In bigger cities, readers could purchase these journals at newsstands, and throughout Germany, readers could subscribe to them by postal mail. Other types of lesbian literature, like novels, also gained popularity. But with its beginning in 1933, the Nazi regime started harassing gay and lesbian communities and individuals by shutting down and raiding their meeting places. Underground organizations remained open, but these came under increasing police surveillance. As part of the new restrictions on the free press, the government terminated gay and lesbian newspapers and journals. By eliminating these gathering places and presses, the Nazi regime effectively dissolved the lesbian communities that had flourished during the Weimar Republic. Now, in the 1920s, right after World War I, Germany had the lowest birth rate in Europe. It declined partly due to women's participation in the labor market. In 1923, Muttertag, or Mother's Day, was popularized. Ten years later, in 1933, Muttertag was declared an official national holiday. The Nazi party's intention was to create a pure Aryan race, so the role of the German woman was to become a mother and repopulate the nation with racially pure offspring. At this time, a woman's sexuality frankly did not matter nearly as much as the simple fact of her female sex. Lesbians were not systematically persecuted in the same way that gay men were, because women as a class were seen simply as breeders, birthing people, uterus havers, and cervix owners, nothing more. Being a lesbian was not enough of a reason for a woman to be sent away to a concentration camp. There was no single law or policy that applied to sexual relations between women, so other factors were considered, like political attitudes or racial identity. Based on these factors, lesbians were classified as asocials, or political prisoners, and imprisoned or sent to camps. We know how difficult it can be to come out and live an authentic life as a lesbian, when the whole world compels us otherwise. So it is highly probable that lesbians, who had just previously enjoyed thriving communities, went into the closet for survival. From 1939 to 1944, German women who gave birth to eight or more children were awarded the Mutter Ehrenkreuz, the cross of honor of the German mother. For eight or more children, a woman received a golden cross, for six or seven was silver, and just four or five got bronze. Over six years, these military tokens were given to more than three million German women. We know that during World War II, millions of people were killed in concentration camps. But what you might not know is that in 1942, the Schutzstaffel, or SS, began opening brothels inside the camps. The Nazis established more than 500 brothels across occupied Europe. Going to the brothel was considered a reward for male prison leaders and forced laborers. The women in the brothels were also used for conversion therapy for gay men, who were forced to make compulsory visits to the brothels once a week. Most of the women who were sexually abused and exploited in the brothels were prisoners from the Ravensbrück camp, 90 kilometers north of Berlin. These women were either forced or deceived into sexual slavery. Men in charge of the camps would promise to give the women preferential treatment or release from the camp after six months. None of the women were released early from the camp as promised. Over 100,000 women had been incarcerated in Ravensbrück by the time the Soviet troops arrived. At the end of World War II, Germany was divided into separate territories. In the West, the land was occupied by military forces from England, France, and the United States, while the East was occupied by soldiers of the Soviet Union. When German people heard rumors about what Soviet soldiers were doing in other towns and villages, 
They fled to evade Soviet occupation. Some people say that the Soviet Union had liberated East Germany from the clutches of the Nazi regime. So it became taboo to talk about how these Soviet soldiers had raped masses of German women and girls. In 1949, the German Democratic Republic, or GDR, was established in the Soviet occupation zone. One political system of oppression was replaced by the next. Women, again, were caught in the crossfires of male domination. For almost 30 years, Germany remained divided. From 1961 to 1989, the city of Berlin was split by a concrete wall, which had been built in some places overnight. About 100 people from the east were shot at the Berlin Wall in those years, trying to flee to West Berlin. In East Germany, 90% of women had jobs and earned money, compared to about 50% in the West. Women in the East technically had equal rights with men, but they were expected to manage the household on top of their job, like many women today. In the late 1980s, lesbian groups emerged in the East, and the first groups for women started within a growing peace movement. In 1987, Ursula Zinniger founded the Sonntagsklub, or Sunday Club, for lesbians and gay men in East Berlin. However, homosexuality was not wanted by state leadership. Lesbian groups were spied on by the Stasi, the secret police, who gathered information about activists in order to ruin their reputations and destroy them psychologically. In West Germany, similar to the states around that time, women were encouraged not to work, but to become housewives instead. Women could attend university, where a strong student movement was rising, but the men there always laughed at women's contributions or concerns. On September 13, 1968, Helga Zanda spoke at a meeting of students about the role of women in the student movement. And when a male student leader interrupted, Sigrid Ruger threw a tomato at him. This moment is known as Tomatenwurf, tomato throw, and was the tipping point of women's rage, propelling forward a new feminist movement in the West. In the 1970s, loads of lesbian groups got organized, ran bars, bookshops, consciousness-raising groups, you name it. In 1975, lesbians in West Berlin formed the Lesbisches Aktionszentrum, or the LATS, and distributed the Lesbian Presse, the Lesbian Press, a radical lesbian separatist feminist magazine, which was delivered to West Germany, Denmark, Switzerland, and Austria. This also resulted in women's book distribution, and the lesbians began to translate and publish books and articles, many from the USA. I contacted one of the founding members of the LOTS, Mona Kuhn, for an interview for this podcast, but unfortunately, it wasn't in the cards this time. I hope in the future she can tell the story of how she smuggled lesbian magazines into East Berlin, how she was detained by border police for several hours with a stack of papers hidden under her shirt the whole time. In the 1980s and early 90s, Audre Lorde traveled to Berlin and encouraged Afro-German women to connect with each other and define themselves for themselves. In 1986, she and the women she met published Faba Bekennen, Showing Our Colors, Afro-German Women Speak Out, which was the first book published in Germany that treated Afro-Germans as a national identity. That year, the historian Katharina Ogentoya, who worked closely with Audre Lorde, helped found ADEFRA, a cultural policy forum of and for black women in Germany. In 1989, the wall came down and the process of national reunification began. But this did not benefit everyone in the same way. 
After reunification, the number of working women in the East was cut in half. East German women lost their jobs and their rights to legal abortion and free birth control. Plus, it became more complicated for Eastern Germans to get a divorce. October 3rd is now celebrated as German Unity Day, but there still are stark differences between lesbians from the East and West. Lesbians from different generations also have a different frame of reference. While some focus on mainstream public engagement, others are more politically minded. It is true that radical lesbian feminist blogs and magazines and organizations do exist in Germany, like Kofra and Die Stohrenfriedes, but there are also publications and events that focus more on aspects of everyday life for lesbians of all backgrounds, like Elmag and the Dyke March. There are lesbian separatists, and there are lesbians who prefer to organize and party with gay friends. We all have different methods of action, different strategies, and we don't need to agree on everything. But the one thing we all share in common is a desire, a requirement for lesbian community. Together we are strong, so let's not let ourselves be dissuaded from working with each other in the ways that we can, because who knows what tomorrow will bring. Thank you to the organizers, the smugglers, the tomato throwers. Thank you to the three interviewees this month, Manuela, Judith, and Inga. Thank you, lesbians. Until next time, this is Julia Beck. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 66th edition podcast on German lesbian feminists and feminism. WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing their views. Thank you so much, Manuela Kai, Judith, and Inga Klein for speaking with us. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. And if you are interested in joining our team, we are always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Thistle Pedersen signing off for now. And I am April Now. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we will focus our program on death and feminist approaches to it. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, November the 4th. But before our next edition drops, I will be conducting an interview with Jean Sarzen and Linda McDonald two Canadian retired nurses, about their recently released book, Women Unsilenced, Our Refusal to Let Torturer Traffickers Win. Jean and Linda detail their grassroots approach to caring for women, which is the perfect antidote to the patriarchal practice of pathologizing trauma. I am very excited about this interview and creating more Canadian content overall. So please keep your feminist eyes peeled and turfy ears open for it. And I am Emily on Lorenzen. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interviews are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. This is Jenna signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. Keep an eye on WLRN's website and social media pages for the release of the extended interviews with today's guests. Judith, Inga Kleiner, and Manuela Kai all had so many strong and interesting things to say, we wanted to be sure you don't miss any of it. Stay tuned to womensliberationradionews.com 
or WLRN's Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Spinster, and Overit pages. Thanks for listening. And this is Aurora. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thank you, as ever, for your support. We would love to hear from you, so please share, like, and comment widely. for the patriarchal kiss how will we find what needs to be shown and then after that where is home tell me where is my home cause gender hurts